question which first confronted the believers after the apostasy of Shabbatai Zvi, and one to which they never ceased returning, was of the following order. Since by all external tokens, the redemption had already been at hand, and since the Messiah, the authenticity of whose mission was beyond doubt, had actually revealed himself to his people, why had he forsaken them and his religion, and why had the historical and political deliverance from bondage, which was to have naturally accompanied the cosmic process of tikkun, been delayed? And remember that tikkun means repair, and the specific Kabbalistic meaning um, is a repair of damage that was done in creation, in which some of the holy light was trapped in the material realm and the lower part of it. And so that's why he says cosmic process of tikkun. But at the same time, on the historical plane, this is associated with um, the liberation of Israel from its bondage. <clears throat> Continuing, to this a paradoxically compelling answer was quickly offered. The apostasy of the Messiah was itself a religious mystery of the most crucial importance. No less an authority than Maimonides himself, it was argued, had stated that the actual details of the redemptive process were not to be known in advance. And if you don't know, Maimonides is probably the biggest name in Jewish philosophy. He was a medieval Jewish thinker, author of, most famously, The Guide to the Perplexed. He was actually pretty controversial in his time, um, if I'm not mistaken, for um, trying to incorporate uh, Aristotle into, um, into Jewish thinking. Earlier in the late Hellenistic period, Philo of Alexandria had done the same with Plato, um, but he sort of squared the circle, so to speak, by claiming that Plato had gotten his wisdom originally from Moses. There's this interchange between Jewish thinking and Greek philosophy throughout its history, but it's a problematic one, often one that... Uh, has to be sort of disavowed. You know, Kabbalah, for instance, has a very similar uh, metaphysical schema to um, Neoplatonism, the emanation idea. Uh, but anyway. And although the truth of the matter was that everything that had happened was fully alluded to in the Holy Scriptures, these allusions themselves could not be correctly understood until the events they had foretold had come to pass. All might be found to have been predicted in the relevant prophecies and legends which Nathan of Gaza, and even more so Abraham Cardozo, now proceeded to expound in the form of a new doctrine to which Shabbatai Zavi himself apparently subscribed. As long as the last divine sparks, Nitzotzot, of holiness and good, which fell at the time of Adam's primordial sin into the impure realm of the Klipot, the Hylic forces of evil, whose hold in the world is particularly strong among the Gentiles. Uh, now, Hylic is a Greek term that means uh, material, means matter. Um, it actually derives from the word for wood, which is kind of interesting. Um, 
the Gnostic tradition uh, proposes an opposition between hylic and pneumatic beings. So basically matter and spirit. This is the dualism that we're working with here, along with we're going to see um, the letter and spirit of the law, to use uh, terms that Paul introduced. And in doing so, he you know, raised the specter of the antinomian heresy. And here we have the uh, uh, frankly racist uh, contention that uh, the Gentiles are more hylic beings. Have not been gathered back again to their source. So, the explanation ran, the process of redemption is incomplete. It is therefore left to the Redeemer, the holiest of men, to accomplish what not even the most righteous souls in the past have been able to do, to descend through the gates of impurity into the realm of the Kalipot, and to rescue the divine sparks still imprisoned there. As soon as this task is performed in the kingdom of evil, as soon as this task is performed, the kingdom of evil will collapse of itself, for its existence is made possible only by the divine sparks in its midst. The Messiah is constrained to commit, quote, strange acts, masim zarim, a concept hereafter to occupy a central place in Shabbatian theology, of which his apostasy is the most startling. All of these, however, are necessary for the fulfillment of his mission. In the formulation of Cardozo, quote, it is ordained that the King Messiah don the garments of a Marano, and so go unrecognized by his fellow Jews. In a word, it is ordained that he become a Marano like me. So remember the Maranos were the forced uh, converts to Christianity uh, who retained uh, Jewish identity and practice in secret. And the idea is by voluntarily uh, doing this the Messiah is actually descending into the material realm, which is identified with the Gentile, non-Jewish world, and by doing so, helping to liberate the sparks, the holy sparks that are trapped there. Now, there's another aspect, which I don't recall if um, Sholem talks about in detail. I don't think he does, but if so, we'll get there. Uh that applies this to his marriage. Um, Shabtai's third wife was a woman named Sarah Ashkenazi, who had been a uh, refugee from Poland. There had been uh, massive pogroms there. Um, they were attacked. Uh, the Jews of Poland were attacked and driven out by Cossacks. And Sarah was taken in by a Christian family, and I believe she was sent to a convent at one point, but that didn't uh, last, obviously. And she, there's a little bit of confusion. It's unclear whether she had literally been a prostitute or whether she was simply a loose woman. Um, but Shabtai had actually made a prophecy that he was going to marry a prostitute. And somehow he got word of the existence of this woman, Sarah. And Shabtai had her brought to him. And I believe that there was also, she had declared that she was going to marry the Messiah or something like that. 
very strange thing. And so he did marry her. So why did he do this? I mean, it's kind of an odd thing where Shabbatianism came to be associated in particular, especially after um, the Frankists, who extended this even more so, uh, became associated with antinomianism in a sexual sense. Um, but early on, Shabbatai didn't show any evidence of being, you know, some kind of pervert or something like that, or um, promiscuous. In fact, it was, it was actually kind of the opposite. His first two marriages were uh, annulled. Um, I think the Jewish word is get, but um, th this was due to you know, lack of sexual activity on his part. He didn't really seem to have much of an interest in that, at least early on. Um, but there is some precedent in this. Apparently, uh, the prophet Hosea married a unfaithful woman intentionally, and this was like a symbol of uh, Israel's unfaithfulness to God. And this, by the way, is the primary meaning of the Whore of Babylon, the this thing about the descent into the material realm to free the sparks and that being symbolized by marrying a prostitute, uh, I guess, in order to save her, right? Um, this has precedent in the Gnostic world with the idea of Hachimoth, the lower Sophia, or what Plato calls the earthly Aphrodite. And again, there's a precursor here in uh, Simon Magus and Helen. And let me just read that real quick from, from Wikipedia. It's worth considering. As described by Epiphanius, in the beginning, God had his first thought, his Anoia, which was female. And that thought was to create the angels. The first thought then descended into the lower regions and created the angels. But the angels rebelled against her out of jealousy and created the world as her prison, imprisoning her in a female body. <clears throat> Thereafter, she was reincarnated many times, each time being shamed. Her many reincarnations included Helen of Troy, among others, and she was finally reincarnated as Helen, a slave and prostitute in the Phoenician city of Tyre. God then descended in the form of Simon Magus to rescue his Anoia and to confer salvation upon men through knowledge of himself. So this prostitute, Helen, uh, represented the female first thought, which has its uh, analog in Kabbalism as the uh, Shekinah, the female um, side of God, um, the female aspect of God, rather. Um, interesting this is god's first thought so we have a female born out of god's thought which re, uh, recalls the myth of the birth of athena out of the head of zeus uh, zeus has this terrible headache and gets hephaestus the blacksmith to crack it open and out out comes this warrior woman fully formed but it's interesting that this slave prostitute Helen was a reincarnation of Helen of Troy. If you've read Goethe's Faust Part Two, you know that one of the things that Faust does with his power granted to him by Mephistopheles 
is to go and retrieve Helen of Troy um, to be his consort. And the ostensible reason for this is that, of course, she's the most beautiful woman in the world. Um, but we can see here that there's a Gnostic slash Kabbalistic meaning to this of the redemption of the female aspect of God, which has been imprisoned in the material world. Um, and of course, uh, you know, Oswald Spengler takes Goethe's great two-part, I'm hesitating to even call it a tragedy, really, because it actually is not. Well, part one is, part two is not, because uh, Faust is redeemed. Um, you know, Spengler says that this is the principle underlying the whole modern West since the Frankish kingdoms. You know, to Spengler, um, the West is not Hellenistic or Christian. It did not have its origin in ancient Greece and Rome or in the Bible, um, but is its own unique uh, world form organized around the idea that he calls the Faustian, which is a desire for the infinite and to fill infinite space. And that particularly takes the form of total knowledge. And you see definitely see that in Goethe's um, play. But the way that this knowledge is, the form that this knowledge takes is is ultimately knowledge of woman that that's the symbolically what it is the desire to know all is the desire to possess all of the secrets of woman and to somehow possess her totally this is impossible man cannot conquer infinite space or have total mastery of nature. If Faust had been written in ancient Greece, he would have died horribly, having been punished by the gods for his hubris. But Faustian man wants Faust redeemed. But Faustian man is fading from the scene, and we can see it every day if we have eyes to see. Before proceeding to take a closer look at this bold and heretical doctrine, one might well dwell for a moment on Cardozo's own words which provide, in my opinion, an invaluable clue to the motivation behind it, as they do, in fact, to nearly every other feature of the Sabbatian movement as well. Underlying the novelty of Sabbatian thought, more than anything else, was the deeply paradoxical religious sensibility of the Maranos and their descendants, who constituted a large portion of Sephardic Jewry. Um, and if you don't know, the Sephardim are the... Jews from Spain, um, or who had settled in Spain, um, whereas the Ashkenazi um, had settled in 
Central Eastern Europe, primarily Germany, there is a specific um, area called Ashkenaz, um, and so that's where they got their name from. Um, now, Shabbatai is presumed um, the area that he lived in um, in Turkey was primarily Sephardic, but he is believed to be um, a smaller and kind of older uh, group called the Romaniot, um, which came they came from Byzantium, but this isn't proven exactly. Moving on. Had it not been for the unique psychology of these reconverts to Judaism, the new theology would never have found the fertile ground to flourish in that it did. Regardless of what the actual backgrounds of its first disseminators may have been, the Shabbatian doctrine of the Messiah was perfectly tailored to the needs of the Maronic mentality. Indeed, we know for a fact that Abraham Cardozo, one of the movement's most successful proselytizers, was of definite Murano origin. He was born in Spain in 1627, a particular which goes far to explain the remarkable zeal and sincerity with which he defended the new doctrine. Historians in our own day have pointed out, at length, the degree of contradiction, of duplicity and duality, which was involved in the religious consciousness of the Maranos. For these undercover Jews, quote, to don the garments of a Marano was by no means an unjustifiable act. In its defense, they were fond of citing the story of Queen Esther, as well as various other biblical fragments and verses. And uh, the Queen Esther story, um, just quickly recount that if you don't know, um, is set in Persia. Uh, Queen Esther was, uh, so you have the Persian king Ahasuerus, I'm not sure exactly how to pronounce his name, if that's quite right, but uh, he got rid of his first disobedient wife Vashti and took uh, this beautiful woman Esther as his queen um, which he was quite smitten with and she was a Jewess uh, that's an offensive term now but whatever but secretly she did not reveal this uh, and she had a cousin named Mordecai who got in trouble by refusing to bow to one of the king's uh, high-ranking officers, uh, Haman, and Haman uh, took such offense that he he was going to have Mordecai hanged and, and all of his people killed. Um, and kind of glossing over a lot of the details, uh, when Queen Esther revealed her heritage and she was able to uh, convince the king to um, not rescind the uh, extermination order that had been issued against the, the Jews because uh, the king uh, couldn't do that. He couldn't rescind an order that, uh, I mean, it was Haman that had issued the order, but it was officially from the king. So he couldn't do that, um, but he uh, allowed um, the Jews to um, take up arms and defend themselves. And he personally had Haman hung instead. So there is a Jewish holiday, Purim, uh, which celebrates this mildly gruesome event, uh, but it's 
pretty unlikely that uh, there's any historical basis to it. One major theory about why this exists is that, uh, of course, you know, the Jews were liberated from the Babylonian captivity uh, by the Persians uh, and allowed to return to Jerusalem, but they were still governed uh, by Persia, and they took on an, quite a bit of Persian cultural influence uh, during this period, and they were, in fact, celebrating the uh, Persian New Year, I believe it was, and one idea is that the Purim story emerges to explain why Jews were celebrating uh, effectively a non-Jewish holiday. There's some other interesting uh, ideas about this, about uh, how there's like a symbolic um, remnant here that goes back to Babylon and um, how Esther is really Ishtar and Mordecai is really Marduk. I'm not sure exactly how that... Um, what what the story is supposed to mean if that is the case uh, haven't really looked into an exegesis on that but that would be very interesting anyway the the only element of the story he's really uh, I think alluding to here is the fact that Esther kept her um, her identity under wraps for so long continuing on Formal apostasy had never been considered by them to represent an irreconcilable break with their mother faith, and now along came a religious metaphysic which exalted just such a form of life to the highest possible level by attributing it to the person of the Redeemer himself. Certainly all kinds of implications which we shall deal with later on were contained in this original idea. Let us examine it more closely. To begin with, the new doctrine could no longer be harmonized with the traditional messianic folk myth held to by the Jewish masses, unless room could be found in the latter for such a contradiction in terms as the apostasy of the Redeemer. At first, it was no doubt believed that the Messiah's descent into the realm of the Klipot was but an incidental aspect of his mission, quote, as happened to King David when he sojourned in the Achish king of Gath. End quote. But it soon came to be realized that such an extraordinary event must occupy the center of any messianic schema, which, if necessary, would have to be rebuilt around it. If the Messiah's task indeed contained a tragic element, as was now being proposed, support for this belief would have to be found in the sources and attitudes of Jewish tradition. What now took place in Shabbatianism was similar to what happened in Christianity at the time of the Apostles the chief difference being the shifting of the tragic moment in the Messiah's destiny from his crucifixion to his apostasy, a change which rendered the paradox in question even more severe. So I keep drawing parallels to the early Christian movement, and uh, Sholem does that here as well. And to this novel conception, another was soon added, one which indeed had a basis in Agatic literature, but whose hidden implications had gone unnoticed as long as no pressing reality had existed to force its application outside of the domain of pure theory and imagination. This was the notion that the King Messiah was to give a new Torah, and that the commandments of the law, mitzvot, were to be abrogated in messianic times. So I'm really not um, 
too familiar with uh, Agatic literature. Um, rabbinic literature in general is uh, a pretty confusing mass to me of uh, Talmud and Midrash. Um, and my understanding, which is probably not great, is that Agadah is basically just about everything that is not strictly uh, legal in implication. And I'm just going to go to the Wikipedia page and, and read what it says about it. Uh, Agadah, um, it gives you the Hebrew here, but the translation um, or the Jewish uh, Babylonian Aramaic, um, it translates to tales, fairy tale, lore. Um, so that's pretty interesting. Uh, it says it is the non-legalistic exegesis which appears in the classical rabbinic literature of Judaism, particularly the Talmud and Midrash. In general, Agadah is a compendium of rabbinic texts that incorporates folklore, historical anecdotes, moral exhortations, and practical advice in various spheres from business to medicine. So it kind of sounds to me that uh, it actually is what we think of when we think of literature. Um, it's not of... Um, technical legal import um, but it's stories and the wisdom that can be extracted from um, those tales now there is another part here that I think is uh, worth looking at so I'm just going to read uh, this paragraph real quick uh, which deals with uh, literal allegorical teachings Rabbi Moshe Chaim Lutzaro discusses the two-tiered literal allegorical it's literal dash allegorical mode of transmission of the Agadah in his well-known discourse on the Haggadot. He explains that the oral law, in fact, comprises two components, the legal component discussing the mitzvot and halakha, and the secret component discussing the deeper teachings. The Agadah, along with the Kabbalah, falls under the latter. The rabbis of the Mishnaic era believed that it would be dangerous to record the deeper teachings in explicit Mishnah-like medium. Rather, they would be conveyed in a, quote, concealed mode via paradoxes. Due to their value, these teachings should not become accessible to those of bad character, and due to their depth, they should not be made available to those not schooled in the ways of analysis. This mode of transmission, nevertheless, depended on consistent rules and principles, such that those equipped with the keys would be able to unlock their meaning. To others, they would appear as non-rational or fantastic. Uh, so... You know, again, I'm coming back to this um, dual level idea here. Uh, this is classic esotericism. Um, this happens in Freemasonry as well, where a symbol will have one meaning to those who have not been uh, initiated or attained the correct degree, and another meaning to those who have. And Sholem doesn't shy away from. Uh, calling the mentality, of course we're not dealing with Muranos here, we're dealing just with uh, uh, rabbis, but he frankly says that it is duplicitous. And it is pretty interesting that a major Jewish thinker uh, that is roughly contemporary, uh, Leo Strauss, uh, is famous for having a theory of esoteric writing, but he's applying it not to Jewish uh, writers or thinkers or texts, but to the Western philosophical tradition, people like Plato and John Locke and Rousseau and so on, that there's an esoteric strata to the writing that says something uh, essentially different from what the surface text says. Uh, but anyway, I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not versed in Strauss very much, so 
again, probably another time. Moving on, speculations of this nature could be found in the various Midrashim and Agadot, but possessed no particular authority and were easily challenged by means of other exegetical passages to the opposite effect, with the consequence that, in Jewish tradition, the entire question had hitherto been allowed to remain in abeyance. Even those visionaries who dreamt through the ages of a new word of God in a redeemed world did not, in fact, particularly connect this idea with the activities of the Messiah himself. And it was not until it was seized upon by the new Maranic doctrine that its latent explosive power was revealed. So we're getting into this idea of the age of the Messiah, which is going to, um, I don't know the right word, nullify or make superfluous the Torah, the law. Um, one sees this notion uh, elsewhere particularly in a Catholic thinker named Joachim of Fiore, who proposed three ages of history, the age of the Father, uh, which was the age of the Law and the Torah, the age of the Son, which is the age of Jesus Christ in the New Testament, uh, which Jesus said that he didn't destroy, but rather fulfilled the Law, but definitely uh, post-Paul, um, Christians did actually not have to follow um, the ritual laws of Judaism anymore. And that was a distinct break where Christianity became its own thing. So from a certain perspective, Christianity was antinomian, which is against the law. Um, but most Christians are eager to say that, um, you know, in fact, it's not. It's, uh, it is only the they break it up into three parts of the law, and it's really just the ritual, um, mosaic, you know, Deuteronomy and things like that, those sort of rituals that don't, and of course circumcision, uh, which don't apply to Christians, but of course Americans do it anyway. Um, interesting. But Joachim proposed a third age which would be the age of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, right? So he's, he's still dealing with a Trinitarian idea. And, you know, these stage theories of history, they always, almost always come in threes. And the age of the Spirit would not need law at all. Okay, let's continue with Sholem's text. The doctrine of the necessary apostasy of the Messiah did not originate in the realm of literature was rather rooted in the new religious feelings that had come to exist. It was only after the initial manifestation of these that the effort to justify them on the basis of authoritative sources began, and with truly remarkable results, for practically overnight a new religious language was born. From bits and pieces of scripture, from scattered paradoxes and sayings in the writings of the Kabbalah, from all the remotest corners of Jewish religious literature, an unprecedented theology of Judaism was brought into being. The cynicism of most Jewish historians toward these insanities, quote insanities, does not reveal any great understanding of what actually took place. Suddenly, we find ourselves confronted by an original Jewish terminology, far removed from that of Christianity, yet equally determined to express the contradictions inherent in the life of the Redeemer and in redemption itself. Striking as it did, a hidden wellspring of deep religious emotion one can hardly deny that this gospel must have possessed a powerful attraction, 
nor that it often managed to inject new meanings into familiar phrases and figures of speech with a fascinating profundity. Such a dialectical eruption of new forces in the midst of old concepts is rare indeed. Because greats and other historians insisted on regarding its articulation as being nothing more than a pretext for a monstrous debauchment of moral and spiritual values, they completely overlooked its true significance. To be sure, the doctrine of an apostate messiah did serve as a pretext too, but it was also a great deal more. And had it not appealed, and by virtue of its very paradoxicality, to vital components in the spiritual makeup of the Jew, and above all to his sense of spiritual mission, it would never have succeeded in attracting a following in the first place. This missionary ideology reached a peak in the writings of the Lurianic Kabbalah, which strove to inculcate in every Jew a sense of duty to, quote, elevate the sparks, and so help bring about the ultimate tikkun of creation. Here the 53rd chapter of Isaiah played a key role, for as it was now reinterpreted, the verse, quote, but he was wounded because of our transgressions, was taken to be an allusion not only to the Messiah ben Joseph, the legendary forerunner of the Redeemer, who according to tradition was to suffer death at the hands of the Gentiles, but to the Messiah ben David as well, who, quote, would be forcibly prevented from observing the Torah. Um, so... First thing you have to understand is that there are two messiahs. Well, actually, back up. I don't want to get too deep into the woods on this because it's a huge, um, complicated topic, but the idea of the messiah in Judaism is something which starts out quite peripheral. In a way, it doesn't even really exist in the Hebrew Bible, the Tanakh, except in little hints and passages that don't necessarily refer to the idea as such. And as Jewish history progresses, it becomes more and more of a concern as you know obviously the kingdom of israel is destroyed with the babylonian captivity then is restored under the persians then they have to live under the greek seleucids and there are various revolts most famously the maccabees the borders of israel shrink and expand then you have rome and finally the jewish wars resulting in the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, later the Bar Kokhba rebellion, which fails. So the idea of a Messiah who would restore the kingdom, and especially uh, with a, a working temple, a third temple, becomes more and more important. And then the Messiah is sort of read into all kinds of things in the prophets, not only by Jews, but by Christians. Obviously, all of these references uh, will be taken by Christians to refer to uh, Jesus Christ, which Christ means anointed because chrism is a kind of oil. Um, and this is all that Moshiach means as well, the anointed one, a chosen one. And this is conceived of as a, as a military leader, as a king, as a righteous king, uh, someone who brings peace. So 
it's not simply, well, at a certain point, it's merely political in its scope, but also comes to have these eschatological, utopian notions of uh, messianic age and so on. Um, and there's the Messiah Ben David, who is probably more what you would think of, the, of as the Messiah proper, uh, because he's someone who would be literally in the Davidic uh, bloodline. And, you know, the prophetic tradition has it that only someone in the line of David could restore, could, could be the Messiah, because he would restore the conditions of Israel at its most unified and powerful. And the Messiah, Ben Joseph, is associated, as he says here, as someone who's going to uh, suffer and die at the hands of Gentiles, but who sort of helps initiate uh, the Messianic age. So he is also a Messiah. Uh, it's interesting, the Mormons actually believe that uh, Joseph Smith was a Messiah, Ben Joseph. Ben, uh, obviously, is a uh, son of, so, um, but Joseph Smith was son of Joseph Smith Sr. So, And of course, Jesus is seen as Messiah Ben David. This is why there is a genealogy uh, in the Gospels, I forget which one has it, that gives Jesus' pedigree, as it were, showing that he actually does descend from um, David. And of course, his father was named Joseph, so he, he actually uh, checks off both boxes because, of course, he suffered death at the hands of the Gentiles as well. And Isaiah 53 is a chapter that uh, is commonly cited by Christians because it really does seem to um, point toward Jesus. This is uh, someone who's uh, wounded for the transgressions of the peoples. Uh, he's oppressed and afflicted and is brought forth as a lamb to the slaughter. Um, this is part of uh, a number of scriptures which are said to refer to the suffering servant. The end of that chapter uh, says, he bare the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. So this actually fits in with the more strict definition of what a redeemer is, which is a, it has like a transactional value uh, to it. Uh, redemption is redemption from sin. And of course, this brings us back to the subject matter here, which is redemption um, through sin. Now, the way that the Shabbateans, according to Sholem here, are interpreting that wounding from Isaiah 53 is through this idea of the Messiah ben David, who it was said would be prevented from observing the Torah. But let's see where he's going with this. By a play on words, the Hebrew vehu meholal, but he was wounded, was interpreted as meaning from sacred, he, the Messiah, will be made profane, whole. Thus, quote, all Gentiles are referred to as profane, whole, and kalipa, and whereas Israel alone is called sacred, all other nations are profane. And even though a Jew commit a transgression, as long as he remains a Jew among Jews, he is called sacred and an Israelite, for as the rabbis have said, even though he has sinned, he is still an Israelite. Nice work if you can get it. It follows that there is no way for the King Messiah to be made profane except he be removed from the community of Israel into another domain. So by 
converting to Islam and living as a Muslim, the, the Messiah has become a profane person. And technically, he has departed from the community of Israel. Many similar homilies were written on the rest of the chapter, especially on the verse, and he made his grave with the wicked. Yet another favorite verse was Deuteronomy 33.7, quote, And this for Judah, and he said, Hear, Lord, the voice of Judah, and bring him unto his people. Which was assumed to allude to the Davidic Messiah of the house of Judah, whose destiny it was to be taken from his people, hence Moses' prayer that God bring him back to them. Endless biblical verses were cited to prove that the Messiah was fated to be condemned as an outcast and criminal by his own people. Which is true of Jesus too, right? Clothed in messianic radiance, all the typical arguments of the Maranos were applied to Shabbatai V. Quote, and similar to this, the apostasy of Shabbatai V is what happened to Esther, who was the cause of great salvation to Israel. For although most of the people, being ignorant, most certainly despised her for having given herself to an idol worshiper and a Gentile, in clear violation of the bidding of the Torah, the sages of old, who knew the secret of her action, did not regard her as a sinner. For as it is said of her in the Talmud, quote, Esther was the ground of the entire world, end quote. And remember what happened uh, with Esther, how that ended. In the same vein, the familiar Agadic saying, that, quote, the last redeemer will be as the first, was taken to mean that just as Moses lived for many years at the court of Pharaoh, so the Messiah must live with the Turk. For as the exile draws to a close, the Messiah himself must be exiled to atone for Israel's sins. Next came the turn of the Zohar, and here too, with the help of major or minor distortions, a world of new symbols was made to emerge, such as the figure of, quote, the king who is good within but clothed in evil garments. In vain it was argued against this interpretation that the passage does not refer in this context to a king at all, much less to the Messiah. The image, so expressive in its obscurity, penetrated deep into the Sabbatean consciousness where it remained for generations to come. Two other writers whose works were mined in this fashion were Rabbi Judah Lu. Ben Bezalo of Prague, and maybe there's more than one, but that is most likely the uh, rabbi who formed the golem of the famous legend. And Rabbi Joseph Taitetzak of Salonica, one of the emigres from Spain in 1492. The former was found to have cryptically predicted that the Messiah would be bound to the world of Islam well, the latter was supposed to have stated, quote, when the rabbi said that the son of David would not come until the kingdom was entirely given over to unbelief, Sanhedrin 97a, they were thinking of the kingdom of heaven, for the Shekinah is destined to don the garments of Ishmael. And remember that Ishmael was the uh, son of Abraham, who, who did not get his father's inheritance. It was the son of the Egyptian Hagar, and is considered by uh, Jews and Muslims to be an ancestor to Muhammad. In a word, the attempt to justify the belief that the fall and apostasy of the Messiah were necessary actions was carried out assiduously and successfully and led to the composition of many homilies, treatises, and books, some of which have not yet been recovered from their resting places. Endless vindications and defenses of the new doctrine were brought from practically every corner of Jewish literature. 
At first, the tendency was to assert that although the Messiah's conversion had been forced upon him, it was qualitatively to be considered as a deliberate act. Gradually, however, this motif disappeared, and the emphasis came to be placed squarely on the paradox that the Messiah should convert of his own free will. The descent into the Klipot was, indeed had to be, a voluntary one. It was at this point that a radically new content was bestowed upon the old rabbinic concept of mitzvah, haba'ah ba'avara, literally, quote, a commandment which is fulfilled by means of a transgression. Once it could be claimed that the Messiah's apostasy was in no way a transgression, but was rather a fulfillment of the commandment of God. Quote, for it is known throughout Israel that the prophets can do and command things which are not in accord with the Torah and its laws. The entire question of the continued validity of the law had reached a critical stage. We know that even before his apostasy, Shabbatai Zvi violated several of the commandments by eating the fat of animals and administering it to others, directing that the Paschal sacrifice be performed outside of the land of Israel, and canceling the fast days. His followers soon began to seek explanations for these acts, and here began a division which was to lead eventually to an open split in the movement. Thank you.